Welcome everyone and welcome into today's broadcast of the Prism for School of Small Business. You are talking everything small business with me, Salome Chung, CEO of Prism for Enterprises. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please share this broadcast with everyone in your world. Uh, maybe you know some entrepreneurs, aspiring business owners who would um, take value from the broadcast. Please share it with them. Please also follow the Prism for School of Small Business on YouTube. Subscribe to the channel, like our videos, and I would appreciate your comments, questions, and suggestions. Today, we are going to be talking about intellectual property. I will be having a conversation with my good friend and colleague, Susan Troy. What is intellectual property? How, why, and when should you safeguard your intellectual property? Allow me to introduce Susan Troy. Susan is an intellectual property and business law attorney. For many years, Susan has worked with entrepreneurs to safeguard and bring their intellectual property to life. Welcome, Susan. Thank you so much for your kind introduction. And I certainly appreciate the opportunity to share a topic near and dear to my heart. And that's how entrepreneurs can protect the fruits of their creativity and ingenuity in the business setting. Awesome. So Susan, um, please uh, tell our listeners what is intellectual property? Um, in my experience as an entrepreneur, when I started out, I had no idea <laughs> what I had was intellectual property and that I needed to safeguard it. So please tell our listeners um, what exactly is intellectual property, when, how, and why should they safeguard it? Okay, so that's, uh, that, that, that involves a lot of answers. And maybe what we'll do is uh, break the answers up somewhat and then uh, get some guidance from you as to where you want to go based on what I've been saying. Okay. You know, I'm the first to say intellectual property attorney sounds probably a little bit pretentious. Uh, but in any event, intellectual property, uh, to, to make a concrete definition, is basically something tangible that results from one's creativity, vision, innovation, whatever you have it. Legally, there are four types of intellectual property that provide uh, legal protection to the creator, uh, the innovator, the inventor, et cetera, et cetera. And those four types are patents, copyrights, uh, trademarks and uh, trade secrets, the latter becoming much more uh, popular these days as a viable form of intellectual property protection. Awesome. And uh, Susan, uh, let's say I have this awesome idea um, or I invented a product. Um, what, what are my first steps? So if I was discussing this, uh, let's say as a, a coach mentor, which I was for several years with the lunch pad in Miami, there's one tip I really want to give at the beginning. And I can say this as a former uh, R&D scientist uh, that 
you really know you have a good idea if somebody else has a similar product. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, so they, then you know if it's a really good idea. But the one thing that folks don't necessarily realize is the following. Let's say that they've come up with something that looks like it really could fulfill a market need. Okay, let's say improve the, the cleaning process. Let's say it's a recipe. Let's say it's a very um, unique software innovation. It's a pharmaceutical. It can cover a, a wide range of topics. But just because the inventor uh, believes that that product uh, is not on the market, that theirs is uh, totally innovative, theirs is a, you know greatest thing since sliced bread or what have you, that theirs is brand new, that's not the case. And not necessarily the case, let, let me uh, state not necessarily. And so one of the first places to start, and anybody can do this now on a Google search, one can also go to the United States Patent and Trademark Office website at www.uspto.gov and learn a little bit how to conduct a patent or prior art search. And let me say that uh, there's a lot of uh, old prior art out there, patents, perhaps patents that have expired, patent publications that uh, would constitute prior art and perhaps prevent the patenting of this new idea, this new you know, product, what have you. So that, that's the first place to start before a lot of money is uh, spent on filing a patent application and developing a product. Okay. So that's the first thing with regards to a patent. So um, again, I'm not trying to be negative on anything. I'm trying to uh, provide some guidance as to the first step that should be taken. And just remember, just because something's not on the market, does not mean that there's no prior art. One thing else to remember is that prior art can come from anywhere in the world. It's not limited to the United States. This makes patent law a little bit different from um, some of the other types of intellectual property. And uh, there are formal uh, search companies out there that will do a full-fledged prior art search anywhere in the world. Usually what happens is they're retained by the attorney on behalf of a potential client. They do the searches and then it's the attorney's job to go through and review what, uh, what prior art is particularly relevant. Awesome. So, uh, but Susan, that's why we're here. Um, I wouldn't uh, define it as being negative. It's why we're here uh, to avoid an entrepreneur or an aspiring business owner from spending money, time, and effort into something that already exists elsewhere. That's Even right. if they don't see it on the market, it could very well exist. Right, so, and the USPTO does not necessarily require a patent search, but a prior art search, but one should keep in mind that the examiner at the USPTO is going to conduct a prior art search. So uh, being forewarned is being forearmed. Yes, and, and uh, let's say, Susan, they've done their due diligence, they've done all the searches, what they have is the next best thing to slice bread. Um, how quickly and why should they be moving to um, safeguard the intellectual property? The law changed uh, for United States patent law back in, uh, well, back several years ago. We don't need the precise date. 
where the United States also became a country where the patent will issue to the first inventor to file. Unless there's really some shenanigans or stuff, there's things like that, which I'm not going to go into. Prior to this new uh, enactment of the law, the United States was the only country in the world where the patent would issue to the first person to invent if they could prove they were the first person to invent, even if they filed the application afterwards. So tip number one, if a patent's going to be forthcoming, it will go to the first inventor to file. So these days, uh, what a lot of folks are looking at, and this is a large part of my practice, is to file what's called a provisional patent application. A provisional patent application. I'm not going to go into the details about it, but the provisional application provides a filing date. The provisional patent application will never evolve into a patent. The provisional patent application gets exactly one year to file the utility patent application are the big kahuna of patent applications, which will be actually evaluated by the United States Patent and Trademark Office. But where the provisionals are so important is now you've got that date, right? We said that it's the first inventor to file uh, who will receive a patent if a patent's going to issue. So that's number one, uh, to get that provisional patent application in and don't sit on it. Number two, without going into a lot of detail, there are some timeframes um, uh, that um, apply here that could prevent uh, an inventor from getting a patent. And this has to do uh, to the situation where the inventor may be trying to determine if they can make some money from their invention before they spend, on, spend money on getting a patent. The problem is there's kind of a statute of limitations there. I always use that term because a lot of folks are familiar with it. After which uh, the, the, the patent office would not grant a patent if they knew about some of these activities. So basically uh, the inventor gets exactly one year from let's say an offer for sale. There's some other complexities there in which to file their application. So that's why the provisional is very useful because now you've got the filing date and during that year grace period before filing the utility patent application, the inventor can use that time to determine, is this something that's going to make money? You know, how can I commercialize it? How can I go about and do this? So uh, the provisional, I would say, probably is uh, the best of all worlds. But one thing else to remember with a provisional is that um, if a patent issues, the uh, length of term of the patent is going to be from the filing date of the utility, if that makes sense. So the term does not go back to the provisional. It starts from the utility. So in a sense, uh, the applicant will get another, another year there as to the term of the application, which is generally 20 years from the filing date of the application. Awesome. Thank you, Susan, for that in, those insights. Uh, now, um, within that one-year period, um, is it safe for the entrepreneur or aspiring business owner to start branding the product as is, seeing that they've secured their space? They can go ahead and start looking for funding. They can start um, promoting what it is. Um, 
out there? It, 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 would you say it's safe for them to do that or should they get still get an NDA? When oh, always, 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 always a non-disclosure agreement. And um, I would invite anybody who's interested in this topic to connect with me on LinkedIn to have uh, copies of blogs I write on this topic. So NDAs uh, can be very critical. Now, I'm the first to say that one can have the best agreement in the world. And ultimately, a lot of contract law is dependent upon the honesty of the other party and also a contract that is very well written and non-ambiguous. So one can get uh, form NDAs online. I personally uh, like to tailor NDAs and I always like to make sure in the NDA uh, to designate what is the business purpose of this NDA? Are we looking at a joint venture? Am I looking for funding? Am I looking for a contract manufacturer? So all NDAs are not created equally, but um, uh, it's very important that um, uh, the NDA contract be as unambiguous as possible. And that, that's the key for any contract. Awesome. Uh, what happens, Susan, if um, uh, an entrepreneur, let's say they weren't careful enough mm -hmm. and uh, someone has stolen their idea? They go into the drugstore, the supermarket, or a retail outlet, and they see their their product on the shelf. Um, what should they What should they do then? Well, they should do a patent search because remember, and, and this is something else that gets a little tricky with prior art searches. And I always tell my clients this: it's a little bit different from trademark law. There's going to be a blackout period where prior art is not available because the United States Patent and Trademark Office keeps things confidential. Now, without going into detail, sometimes patent applications can be, uh, will be published. I don't want to, go, I don't have time to go into detail about that. But, um, um, you know, what I'm trying to say is every piece of prior art may not be available even with the best, most powerful search. Because some things are going to be confidential. Now, if the patent issues, okay, then of course a patent publication is going to be uh, published. So that's the first thing I would do um, is to try and figure out exactly, um, you know, if this patent issued, what have you. Now, you know, again, I, I'm, I'm. I always mention, you know, you have a really great idea if somebody else has had it also. If the product was de uh, developed totally independently, there was no interaction between our inventor or anybody else, um, uh, you know, who, who is involved in this product that now is uh, at the store, it can, that, can, that can become a little bit tricky. It, it's very, very factually oriented and patent litigation is expensive. And uh, so there has to be a lot of review there to figure out uh, how this situation came about. It could be totally innocent. It could just be the luck of timing. There could be something nefarious going on there. Awesome. Um, Susan, I want to switch to, to somewhat to the legalities. Um, uh, what, are, what is the importance of being able to establish bona fide use. That's something you talk about all the time. Uh, what does that mean? Okay. Um, 
that really isn't the situation for patents because there's okay. a lot of that patents out there. Large, right. so there's so, a lot okay. of patents. And I'll, ju I'll just give you an example on that. Years ago, when I was in the corporate world, um, I had patent applications filed as an R&D person. And um, the company at one time was going to develop a, a technology that I had developed, uh, uh, I would say an innovation for, uh, and a patent application. But then as often happens in big companies, the decision was made not to go that route. However, the company uh, did work towards getting a patent on it because that would have uh, given my company the right to preclude legally anybody else from using it. So um, I don't know if that really answers your question. Where I talk a lot about the importance of use uh, is, is related to trademark law, which is absolutely critical. Okay. And, and as far as um, most of the, well, I would say the, the USPTA governs the law in the U.S., but when someone gets a patent or a trademark or protects their uh, trade secret in the U.S., what are the international law implications? How does that affect their, their, um, their intellectual property? Well, there's two things very important um, to, uh, to consider here. And again, every, every uh, inventor will be a little bit different, but let's say that this is a product that really has an international flavor to it. Patent and trademarks are territorial. And by this, I mean, if somebody gets an issued patent, our registered trademark, that intellectual property is only protected in the United States. To get protection in other countries, applications have to be filed there. Now there are numerous treaties and so forth that um, enhance uh, or let's say uh, render the administrative process a little bit easier to handle. Uh, for example, the Madrid Protocol for, uh, for Trademarks and the PCT, the Paris Convention uh, Treaty for Patents. But again, uh, things are territorial. But having said that, let's say for example, a patent owner patent issued, they're selling product here and uh, a counterfeit product is coming in from China. The patent owner can file documentation uh, with the government such that uh, at the border, these counterfeit products could be seized. Now there, there are procedures to go through, uh, which I obviously I can't get into here, but the bottom line is, even though a U.S. patent owner has no rights to anything sold in China, I mean, they could try and sell it, but if there's, for example, a Chinese patent over there, uh, they have no protection. However, what they can do is prevent somebody from selling a product, a counterfeit product, patented product, or trademark product, or copyrighted product within the United States by taking advantage of those uh, border, those border legal procedures. Okay, mm -hmm. awesome. Susan, I'm gonna circle back to the beginning. <laughs> I, I, um, I'm kind of making a full circle. Um, when a, a, an entrepreneur um, green, they have no clue what they're doing and they have what is conceivably a great idea, but they have no money. They don't know how to, one, they don't know how to protect their intellectual property and they have no money. So conceivably, 
um, what most of them will do is they'll try to do it on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been on that journey. Don't take it, people. It's not a wise one. Uh, I, I will say that you can safely um, do the provisional patent on your own. I think it's a somewhat simple process, but I wouldn't advise you to uh, continue on your own um, beyond that point. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Susan? Well, let me mention one thing uh, with the provisional patent application. And I've had people uh, come to me um, after the fact um, who have even hired some of these invention submission companies, which by the way, I'm gonna go on record as saying that here, do not hire an invention submission company. You see them advertised on TV. There's been a lot of legal issues with them and everything else. They make promises to deliver the moon but usually do not come through. But the one thing to remember with a provisional patent, and and here's a tip for the listeners, the provisional patent needs to be very detailed. It doesn't have to be perfect grammar. It doesn't have to be, you know, edited into a, a fine, fine document, but it has to contain all the elements, all the description, everything else having to do with your invention. I can't encourage this enough that drawings are worth a thousand words to use the old cliche. And the reason I really mention this is there's been situations, uh, not for things I've done, but uh, situations I'm aware of that somebody did their own provisional and they presented, for example, more marketing materials. Okay. And the problem is if the utility patent application is filed, And at that point, the examiner may look at the provisional patent application because what did we say earlier? The filing date of the utility is actually the filing date of the provisional. If the provisional does a very bad job of detailing an invention that now is fully disclosed, let's say now it's done by a patent attorney and contains all sorts of other things that weren't in their provisional, There's a a strong possibility that any um, claims that are issued on the utility patent application could have two filing dates. The filing date for claims actually truly revealed in the provisional versus new claims of information, material, uh, embodiments in that only disclosed in the utility patent application. In, in so just be detailed. If you don't <laughs> think it should go in there, put it in there anyway. Be as detailed as possible. Exactly. Have good drawings. Exactly. Uh, I've had occasion to do um, an, a provisional patent before, and I don't know if the USPTO site has changed, but they don't allow you to finish the application until you submit drawings. So, uh, you know, that's one way to force you to do it, but it, it, it could have changed because so much. But not just, not just necessarily one drawing, uh, yeah. again, because uh, in terms of, of disclosure, even if something is written, not written, if it's in the drawing, that could be deemed as disclosure. Okay, awesome. Yeah. So uh, just be thorough and, and that's not the time to skimp. Okay. Absolutely not. That's called being penny wise and pound foolish because exactly. you're going to end up pay, um, spending a lot more money to correct 
all the um, mistakes, trying to get everything all on the same page, the same filing date, um, all of that stuff. And then remember, if somebody is going to uh, go to investor or something, and they just have the provisional, the investor is going to look at that provisional. At least I, they should. I presume they will. Yeah. Uh, especially, especially a professional investor like uh, an angel yeah. investor or a uh, venture capitalist. Yes, and and having a patent is a, is a good bargaining chip. So um, that's another reason for doing it right. Uh, right. not not skimping and cutting corners. Uh, Now, Susan, with your years of uh, experience in this field, what is the one tip, if you had to give any, the best advice, any advice to entrepreneurs or business owners about uh, intellectual property, what would that one tip be? Educate yourself, read, and understand that most products, most services may well have more than one type of intellectual property. I obviously don't have time to go into a lot of things here. Uh, I'm going to actually give two tips. And when it comes to patents and trademarks, it is exceedingly important uh, to do a search the patent uh, searches we already talked about briefly for trademark, which is all public, go to www.uspto.gov again, really do a thorough search for trademarks, everything is public, and never think that just minor changes in the trademark you're thinking about going on is going to give you uh, get you over the hump where there's other trademarks that are very similar, or just changing the word order like, um, I don't know, what do I have here? Uh, I have something called, um, uh, you know, public spring water. Changing the order to to water spring Publix or whatever, that's never going to get you a trademark. So that that a lot of folks, I think, um, think that trademark law is deceptively simple. It's actually very, very complex, as is copyright law. The most difficult type of intellectual property gift protection for, though, given the nature of the beast, uh, would be inventions under the patent statute. It's a very long, very, very thorough process. Okay, so that's tip one. What's tip two? Okay, well, that was all under the searches. Oh, okay. Uh, Okay, well, yeah, but there is something else that kind of goes to, uh, we've been talking about the individual more, I believe. Uh, We don't have time to get into businesses or what have you, but most entrepreneurs are going to start a business. And it's important to remember that um, it's probably the business that should own the intellectual property. So then we get into uh, what are uh, you know generally known as assignment agreements and all that sort of thing. For example, a um, company comprised of an inventor and a couple of investors where the inventor has assigned the patent rights future patent rights to the company, the company can apply um, for the patent then and any issuing patent will belong to the company, if that makes sense. So in a sense, the inventor's uh, capital contribution is the invention and a potential patent. Well, is there any, 
major differences between uh, a business versus an individual as far as um, safeguarding intellectual property? I'm sorry, is there any difference between? Uh, a individual versus a business. In no, the business also would have to then uh, take steps. And when you have a business, then you've got concerns about uh, employees, independent contractors, all that, that sort of thing. Like, for example, when I was in the corporate world, obviously, my company uh, was the one who uh, applied for all the patents and everything. Um, well, everything they did, because that's what I was hired to do. Um, but right, right, patent rights and everything would issue to that company. If there was any litigation or anything, the company would handle everything. However, something very important to remember, the person or persons who are the inventors will always be cited as the inventors on any issuing patent. Okay. Awesome. So your creativity isn't hidden under the, uh, under the assignee. Okay. Awesome. Well, Susan, this has been such a pleasure. And I have learned so much, and I thought I knew a lot about safeguarding your intellectual property. But thank you again for being on the broadcast. Uh, it was a pleasure having you. Um, I want to once again thank our listeners for being here with us. Please share the broadcast. And once again, please join us over on YouTube, subscribe to the channel. Uh, like this video and um, share your comments with us. Until next time, when you come into the School of Small Business to talk small business with me, I will see you soon. Goodbye. Thank you, Salome. Bye, everybody.